This is Abby Martin. This is a disclaimer to say that psychedelic drugs do not universally work the same for everybody. They can cause psychosis at high enough doses, and they can be life-changing in ways that are not always intended or desired. Psychedelics should be used responsibly and with extreme caution. Right for the problem of LSD. Uh, I think there's been a great deal of misinformation uh, by those who seem to see no harm in it. But as a parent and as a citizen, and certainly now in this position, uh, I am greatly concerned. There is nothing smart, there is nothing uh, grown up or sophisticated in taking an LSD trip at all. They're just being complete fools. Anyone that would engage in this or indulge in this. They are called raves, often longer parties held in dance clubs, bars, or other venues. Characterized by pulsating electronic or techno music, raves are fueled by a new constellation of drugs. At the center of this constellation is MDMA, better known as ecstasy, the hug drug, E, and a host of other street names. Perhaps you, like us, may have been surprised to even hear of their existence of these parties. Photojournalist Scott Curdy and reporter Myra Sanchik, though, have been investigating this underground network, and they take us, undercover, to a rave. Drop Base Network presents The Tempest, a techno-pagan ritual. That's the voice of a secret rave hotline. These are pictures of that ritual, pictures you're not supposed to see. We took them with a hidden camera. If you haven't heard of raves before, it's because you're not supposed to. They're underground parties that have been going on in Milwaukee warehouses for the past year. A rave is generally a party of uh, people don't know it's happening until the night it's happening. That secrecy is part of the appeal. But how do hundreds of kids find out where to go? Well, it's sort of like a scavenger hunt. Someone has to give you the secret phone number. A recording tells you where to buy tickets, which cost $10 a piece. This night, two weeks ago, I bought them at a local clothing store. All right, I've got two tickets now to the Tempest, a techno-pagan ritual, but that's not good enough. I still don't know where the party is, so I have to call yet another number on the ticket to find out where to go to get a map. Maps were being handed out at the Avalon Theater. Now I've got the map. It led us to this warehouse on the near south side. You can see a steady stream of party goers heading up to the fifth floor. Inside, it was dark. There were light shows, lots of loud music and dancing. Drugs? Yes. 1993, law enforcement sees less than 200 pills. From 200 pills to how many million? 12, over 12 million last year. And that staggering increase has created even more dangerous and deadly problems with ecstasy. Hello, this is Robbie Martin. For part two of the ongoing Media Roots radio series on psychedelics. Most of this episode will focus on the rave era, the 1990s, pill testing, dance safe. But we're jumping right back into where we left off on part one, the 1980s and the Reagan era. 
And then Reagan just doubles down on all of this, doubles down on Nixon's whole policy and kind of brings back this the war on drugs, this maybe. notion of the war on drugs as like the biggest problem in society. The degenerates, all these black and brown people in the hood that are just hooked on crack cocaine. Oh, oh, forget about what we're doing over there in Central America with the Contras and the drug running and the CIA jets. Just focus on the fact that black people are using crack cocaine. Don't worry about the powder cocaine that the white people are using. Just worry about the crack cocaine and put ridiculous fucking sentences on that. So oh this God, was the, dude, really yeah. the start of like the mass incarceration. Jesus, mass incarceration explosion. But it really was all built upon the foundation of Nixon. Yeah. And after Nixon criminalized psychedelics, it went completely underground. It was totally stigmatized in mainstream culture. I mean, aside from the impossible to deny beneficial impacts on like art and music, especially growing up in the Bay Area, um, there was a propaganda campaign pushed to demonize LSD specifically as dangerous. And Robbie, I remember this to the to the point where even I was scared of taking LSD until you talked me down. I remember hearing all my life LSD would melt your brain, that it stayed in your spine forever. And don't take it because you're always going to have acid flashbacks that are going to haunt you for the rest of your life. And like, I fucking, I didn't know what to believe, you know, because I was just so inundated with like just the propaganda that I had been hearing all my life about LSD, that it was somehow different and that it was really fucking dangerous. So it definitely worked even on me as someone who was like a child of the Bay Area. Yeah, I mean, well, the DEA sort of became this enormous government agency with that Controlled Substances Act that Nixon passed. I mean, it already existed, I think, technically. Just, you know, became inflated to this insane level. Yeah, the war on drugs just sort of embodied this thing where it's like, got to watch out for drug dealers. Um, You know, your kids are going to be exposed to drugs. Like, tell them how to say no, the D.A.R.E. program. Uh, All these kinds of things came out of it. But I do remember psychedelics specifically being demonized also now that you're talking about this. A memory just came back to me about this thing I was taught in D.A.R.E. about what were called the blue star tattoos. A group or a gang distributing LSD to children using like temporary tattoos in the form of cartoon characters that children liked to get them hooked on drugs. No way. This is what Wikipedia actually calls an urban legend that was popular not just in the United States, but in Brazil, Italy, Mexico, the UK, Germany, Portugal. But what makes this different from a typical urban legend is it wasn't spread by school children themselves. It was actually spread by school administrators. The legend commonly surfaces in American elementary and middle schools in the form of a flyer which is distributed to parents by concerned school officials. In the past, it was often in the form of a poor quality photocopy, clearly (laughs) many generations old. And Wikipedia actually has a picture of the photocopy, which I don't even remember seeing as a kid. I can't think of other drugs where they specifically said that were being put, you know, forced on your own children in the form of, like, cartoon characters. That's especially, like, an insidious, evil thing. So it almost makes it seem like the hippies are almost from, like, the game Narc. Crazy, like, clowns, like, (laughs) wielding, like, butcher knives, like, screaming at you. Like, cutting out with needles. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stabbing you with needles. It does. I mean, so it almost makes sense. Like, Narc came out of that climate, too. But 
you know, the Reagan era was very strange. I mean, uh, in terms of like the anti, you know, certain types of drug propaganda. I mean, of course, other drugs were not, you know, demonized the drugs that were still legal. I mean, look at like the tobacco industry during the eighties. I mean, Joe Camel fucking turned to like a, oh my God, a an icon. Like I remember yeah. that from my childhood so prevalently seeing it everywhere. It was great. It looked great. You know, that their art department behind that was really smart. Even though if it was just a dick and balls. It was like a childhood mascot. It was yeah. just like everyone knew who Joe Camel. Even if it All was just a penis. Do you know about that? That it's supposed to be a penis <laughs> yeah, and balls? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How fucking crazy is it that they actually had like a kid's mascot? Like what like that wasn't geared toward adults to have Joe Camel. Hundred percent, dude. That's of course. fucking disgusting, dude. Yeah. I didn't even really think Overtly. about that. Overtly, oh yeah, that's Good why it's God. so funny to say say that LSD dealers are using cartoon characters to get kids hooked on drugs <laughs> when nobody would give out free LSD to get kids like hooked on LSD. Like the whole thing doesn't make sense. But Camel Cigarettes was using a very appealing cartoon character that was looked fucking awesome to get children into cigarettes. Zero doubt. There was nobody who can go under a lie detector's test and swear that they were not doing that. And that you're paid dude. by Camel to lie for them. I mean, come on, dude. It's so, it's it's so funny when you bring that man. up. Yeah. God. So, I mean, all these you know, drugs were still available in the United States. Um, they were very underground. A lot of you know, kid, high school kids were still taking acid or mushrooms throughout the 1980s. Probably mostly the braver kids were doing it. There wasn't really like a culture surrounding psychedelics in the 1980s. And gay clubs started popularizing more eccentric drugs in club and dance club settings than straight people were experiencing at the time. In the mid-1980s, it had already become well-established that lots of gay clubs especially like in San Francisco and other places, we would actually sell MDMA at the club. Now, MDMA was already something that was, you know, only like more experienced or, you know, more subculturistic people knew about. The gay culture was already very well aware of, uh, you know, MDMA at this time. So there were apparently even vending machines at gay clubs that were, you could just put in like, cha you know, money, like a couple of dollars to get well, an MDMA pill. Was this um, was this like pure MDMA or was this already being pressed with like hard like other and uh, that's a really good question. Things? I think from what I understand, they actually were distributing. I have read descriptions of um, clubs and dealers early on distributing just gel caps with like Molly, you know, actual MDMA powder in them. Fucking um, amazing! And it was it was legal. This is the crazy thing. It wasn't even a prescription-only drug, from what I understand. It was actually unscheduled, uh, from from what I can see on here. I know it was already being used in psychotherapy and couples therapy throughout the 1970s and 80s because people had already discovered, specifically Alexander Shulgin, um, who we're going to talk a lot more about. We're going to kind of gloss over him here because we have way more to say about him. But he discovered the psychedelic properties of MDMA, and it was described less of like an LSD-like psychedelic and more of like an emotional psychedelic. Mm -hmm. That its main effect wasn't like just the mental effects you would get on LSD, it was almost more of an emotional opening. 
somehow couples therapists had discovered this even in the 1980s and were giving it in session uh, to couples. And this was something that, you know, I only heard about much later, but apparently this was like marketed. Um, you could look in the back of like magazines and, and see this. Um, and I don't even know if what they call, you know, if they called it MDMA, I don't know. Um, but this was sort of how MDMA got into American culture first and, and you know, in, in the hands of a lot of people. Chemists call it MDMA for short. Users have a word for it, ecstasy. Federal officials call it an underground drug that's going nationwide. Soon they hope to call it illegal. Steve Young reports tuning in, turning on, and dropping out 1985. Earl and Marge Deacon are doing something they've never done before, taking a psychedelic drug that may be the LSD of the 80s. It brings me to a state of being absolutely in touch with the inside of Earl Deacon. It gets the ego aside and you are able to see clearly uh, what we're here for. The Drug Enforcement Administration wants it controlled like heroin, a drug considered to have no medical use. We have enough cocaine and heroin and marijuana out there and LSD and PCP and the abuse of legitimate drugs. We don't need another drug out there. We don't need this to mushroom and become another problem. About three dozen psychiatrists across the country have been experimenting with the unregulated drug, giving it to their patients as part of therapy. If you're dealing with couples or groups who uh, have emotional bonds, uh, that this is a way of deepening. Uh, it creates a state of what I call high empathy. I felt wonderful. I felt, I mean, it's great to be without fear blocks. This is one of my pieces now. Uh, I'm more abstract. My work has more impact. Uh, my work is better. All the things that I wanted when I was craving cocaine, I had that complete experience of peace and well-being, and I didn't have an addiction to it. Advocates say ecstasy is the drug LSD was supposed to be without the bad trips. We heard these same claims with LSD 20 years ago. Uh, we've heard these same claims with cocaine, which is ravishing the United States. Said to produce no hallucinations, MDMA is fast spreading beyond psychiatric offices to the street and campus. By one estimate, a million doses of ecstasy have been used. Steve Young, CBS News, New York. Uh, this same era was also the same time like people like John, um, Terrence McKenna and Jonathan Ott were starting to experiment with and write about like more obscure psychedelics, like more of a cornucopia of psychedelics. They wouldn't just write stuff about only LSD or only mushrooms. Um, they would write about things like DMT or, uh, you know, other designer drugs that Alexander Shulgin discovered like 2CB or, you know, other, um, I'm trying to think of some other ones, like 5-MeO-DMT or... So McKenna popularized DMT, and he sort of brought this, not new spirituality, but sort of brought in sort of this more mishmash, new age-ish kind of um, version of like what used to be sort of like the hippie spiritualism. But his was much more psychedelic focused, and it was much more about these drugs that, and he would use the term ethnogen. I thought Jonathan Ott was the one who, like, founded that term. No, I think he did. Yeah, I don't think it was uh, Terrence McKenna. Yeah. You know, when McKenna started writing under his own name, I mean, he had already written, like, mushroom-growing guides under pseudonyms. But he sort of 
there was this sort of unpretentious sort of silly playfulness to his the way he would describe his own trips the way he would describe and write about DMT probably you know turned on a lot of people to DMT he seemed to really focus on the plants themselves um the spiritual qualities of these plants it wasn't in a way that was like too new agey or too goofy spiritual to turn off like regular people like me who were not you know very spiritual coming into this it wasn't just the gay clubs that were um, experimenting with MDMA. Also around the same time, like late 80s in Detroit and Chicago was sort of the invention of like acid house parties, which is sort of the progenitor to raves, which would be like these house parties where it would be people only playing like techno music or house music. At the time, the genre that was most popular in the genre of techno, like people would call house music house music, even though these parties were called acid house parties. The reason why is because the other genre of music they would play was called acid techno. And there's some dispute over if the genre name itself derives from the drug acid, LSD, or if it derives from the name of the first acid techno single that has the word acid in it. Uh, it does seem like one of the very first definitive, you know, rave tracks that define what acid techno is, is a basically very heavily LSD inspired track. So it's like the very, like, very first rave song um, to embody this sound style. Like when you listen to music on psychedelics, like it sounds amazing. Like it's, you get this incredible music enhancement effect um, mm -hmm. off of psychedelics that is just, you can't, I mean, I guess, you know, smoking a pot could do that for some people, but it's it's a lot different, I think. I mean, these acid house parties started as just these, you know, actual house parties. And then as it moved more into these, like, underground warehouse spaces, sometimes they would rent, like, the basement of a club. They became what's no, what became known as raves. And at raves, it would mostly not be live music. It would be people playing, like, records of like all the stuff that was just exploding around the time influenced mostly by the sounds coming out of like mostly black musicians out of chicago and detroit making techno and house music and it it exploded all over the united states first and then it went to europe and at the same time these writers like terence mckenna who were sort of already putting psychedelics on the spiritual pedestal and uh, becoming these influential uh, storytellers and writers they actually would were like interacting with the rave culture not just attending raves which they would talk about how like how they would have spiritual experiences like themselves at raves like listening to electronic music in combination with psychedelics terence mckenna would actually go to like chill rooms of raves and be on like the lineup of the flyer and like do like spoken word over like a dj set while people were like tripping out at a rave this interaction became very normalized where it was like all the figures we're going to be talking about for the rest of this podcast series kind of were all like this. They had this lack of pretension in the sense that they interacted directly with the rave scene. Kind of much like some of these like hippie writers or, you know, academics interacted directly with the LSD, like, you know, music scene in the 60s. A lot, even a lot of the early electronic music acts were largely defined by like psychedelics it's almost silly to go back into some of the earlier 
you know, more heady rave track to see how all the titles are just like drug names and stuff. <laughs> I mean, it's just, you know, it's just really over the top. And that was something that made raves unique from other kinds of parties is it was about not just taking MDMA, because that's what's mostly associated with raves now is this plur, you know, a love and unity sensation from everybody on E at a rave chewing on a pacifier with glow sticks. It originally was a plethora of psychedelics. It was like a, originally all about like partying all night, listening to electronic music on psychedelic drugs, whether that be MDMA, LSD, mushrooms. It could be any multitude of psychedelic drugs. And that's also when you started to see the introduction of ketamine and other sort of more obscure different genres of drugs like PCP was kind of more of a street drug, even though it's technically a hallucinogen, but ketamine became this sort of clean pharmaceutical grade drug that started to be distributed in the rave scene that was kind of almost like a disassociative like PCP. And that, you know, became very popular. And people, you know, would often mix drugs together, like candy flipping uh, became something that, you know, became a common thing, or hippie flipping, taking mushrooms and acid at the same time. I don't know, maybe hippie flipping is mushrooms and it's, MDMA. It's MDMA and mushrooms, yeah. yeah. Candy flipping is, uh, you know, LSD and MDMA. And a lot of people did that. It was very common to use these psychedelic drugs in combination, which is, I think, kind of unprecedented to, that that became like a thing in of itself that people did. And it wasn't until 1985, um, and this is actually before the rave scene really exploded, that the DEA uh, declared an emergency ban on MDMA. What's interesting is when it was banned, I mean, it was really obscure. I mean, I don't remember hearing about E or MDMA until like the late 90s or like mid 90s, you know, growing up. So it was for them to ban it. It was very obscure. So I would guess that nothing really major happened because it just probably wasn't like announced very loudly. It was very underground still at the time. And I guess there was this window of time between 1987 and 1988 where they removed it from Schedule 1 temporarily. I don't exactly know why. Maybe they allowed more testing, open-ended, you know, human testing on it or something. Basically, the rave scene became this engine for drugs. <laughs> and it became a drug marketplace in similar way to how Grateful Dead concerts and like the Grateful Dead parking lots were like acid marketplaces. People would just go and travel with the Grateful Dead to either sell or buy drugs. That was a very common thing. You were most likely to find acid at a Grateful Dead concert. Out of anywhere in the world at any given time, find a Grateful Dead or a fish concert, you could probably find someone selling acid in the parking lot at one. It was just normalized. At a rave similar to ecstasy, even though it had been illegal for like, you know, five or six years into the early 90s, it was extremely common. I can't remember going to a rave where I would not be approached by a street dealer flaunting ecstasy. I mean, it was like probably the most common in-your-face public drug offerings of an illegal drug that I've ever experienced was all E at raves. Unlike acid and mushrooms, E is so much more unpredictable and has so many just you have no idea what the fuck you're taking if you're taking like a pressed pill from someone well and i think around this time it was already all the e being distributed was pressed pills so it was and it had sort of this um romanticized like it seemed cool like i i mean i could imagine because like i don't think other illegal street drugs 
I mean, I can't think of any except for acid because it's like on a blotter. Like you buy a blotter, it's like on a piece of paper that looks kind of cool. The packaging of a pressed pill with a logo into it that adds a level of like sophistication to it that makes it seem somehow cooler or cleaner. It's like misleading because you don't you, when you don't know what's in it, it has the appearance of seeming like less street mm-hmm. than like buying like a baggie of Coke or something. Right. It was also around this time that we f- we got also onto the street one of Alexander Shulgin's first inventions. Even though the properties of MDMA were discovered by Alexander Shulgin, he didn't invent MDMA. It had already been invented like decades before him. It just wasn't discovered as a psychedelic. But a drug that he actually invented called 2CB, right when MDMA became banned, people started distributing this drug called 2CB that was a chemical that he published in one of his books. And this was the first chemical of his to go onto the street market and be distributed pretty widely and legally too. This drug was uh, actually marketed as like an erectile dysfunction supplement that was like sold by a company you could order like mail order through. And it was a pure, very potent psychedelic, 2CB was. Moderate oral dose is 15 milligrams. Um, So you can imagine someone buying like this stuff on the mail order catalog at the time and like taking way too fucking much. Have you done 2CB, Abby? Yeah, wait, I'm shocked that this was marketed as an erectile dysfunction drug. Yeah, if you go to the Wikipedia page for it, um, it says that it was under the trade name Erox, it was sold as an aphrodisiac. So maybe not specifically for erectile Mm -hmm. dysfunction, but like sexual dysfunction. That's fascinating. Yeah, and I mean, I guess, you know, you go into any like weird random drugstore and you'll find like a whole rack still of like random dick pills that you you don't really know what's in those you know they Mm -hmm. could be i could see how something like this could easily get through the marketplace and you know be distributed for such a long time actually before before it was really regulated Mm -hmm. and i think it managed to stay legal for i want to say like geez i don't i don't know when it became illegal but i think it became illegal in like the late 90s so this was kind of a turning point in the sense that someone realized there was an opening here for not what's not research chemicals but like very cutting edge psychedelics that were only really existed in like recipe form you know there were all these recipes and you know things that Shulgin had written and other people had written about other psychedelics that had been discovered but they didn't exist on the street the science community was way ahead of the curve in terms of like you know the drugs that were available that were psychedelic this was sort of that that was an, that's an interesting milestone as far as like this was the first time that kind of slipped into the marketplace it kind of makes sense today with all like the, the synthetic marijuana stuff that like you know it takes months for them to finally like ban some of these substances that are able to get through totally unregulated to some of these smoke shops and then hundred kids have had crazy ass experiences on this shit yeah and here's another interesting thing that I don't think most people realize like people probably only think that Amsterdam, you know, is one of the only countries you were able to go to and get mushrooms at a coffee shop in the 90s still. But in fact, Japan, until the late 90s, it was actually, they had a similar like drug tourism thing. And they actually had more interesting selection psychedelics. You can look at some menus of old Japanese, not old, you know, that old, they're from the 90s, psychedelic shops, head shops, and they have fucking everything, dude. Wait, 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 wait. They had like mind blowing. Yeah, they had like 2CI and things like before like the 2000s. 
Wait, wait, wait. So when it's crazy because they criminalized marijuana to such a harsh extent. Yeah, when they became basically an American colony after World War II, marijuana was previously legal in Japan. And we kind of turned them into more of like an American style country with our laws. And somehow this, they didn't have a Drug Enforcement Administration Act that banned uh, a lot of psychedelics, for example, mushrooms. So that must have been legal the whole time. And so was uh, peyote. Because a lot of these shops would sell peyote buttons um, right in the open. Like I remember going to one in, um, uh, I want to say it was Harajuku in in Japan, that little alley, the fashion alley. Mm-hmm. Like they had a head shop there that had, there was just like four, it was meant to attract tourists, you know, like it wasn't underground. Like that synth shop I went to in Japan was like hidden away from tourists. Like they didn't want tourists coming there. This place did. So um, yeah, it's sort of fascinating that that, it existed for a long time and like probably inspired, you know, on some level Japanese culture, not super taboo. You could still, you know, get a hold of a mushroom here and there if you wanted to. You know, I was saying like Grateful Dead concerts and raves, generally speaking, became these marketplaces for psychedelics. You know, probably the best place you could go is just a random person. You know, if you wanted to pick up psychedelic drugs and experiment with them, um, you would typically go to a rave, you know, or if you're into rock music, there were still Grateful Dead concerts in the 90s, you know, and, and Fish concerts, which basically just became the surrogate, like LSD marketplace transferred over from the Grateful Dead concerts. There was different, you didn't have to go to a rave, but I think raves became more cutting edge in terms of the plethora of psychedelic drugs like ketamine and 2CB. Grateful Dead concerts, you could find someone with a nitrous tank maybe to hang out with for a few hours or something, but like it was harder to find stuff like 2CB. Acid, very easy to find still in the 90s. In fact, I would say from what I've heard, acid was always fairly easy to find if you already knew like people who dealt pot or things like that in the 90s. Mushrooms were a little harder to come across for some reason. Maybe there, people just didn't know how to grow them. You know, a lot of people seem to grow their own mushrooms. There's a shit ton of people growing their own mushrooms these days. A lot of that DIY stuff probably didn't exist, but somehow there was just a lot of LSD around. This became even more enhanced the more like deep into rave subculture you went. So there became these things that were kind of more of a uh, uh, these traveling forest campout concerts slash hippie gatherings called rainbow gatherings um, throughout the 90s that were kind of notorious for being places where it's like that's where like the dealers who have every type of psychedelic drug go. Was this like all over the world? Was this happening in the Bay Area? I think it wasn't. No, I don't know if it was all over the world. I think it was mostly West Coast thing. They did them in places that were very wildernessy at, that I had heard about at times, mostly in Northern California. So it was like you had to travel, you know, at least from where we lived, like an hour and a half to two hours if you wanted to check one of these out. And then you would hear stories about how weird they were and how the vibes did not sound good enough to like go out of your way. Let's just say that. I was more personally at the time you know, in like the late 90s, more interested in going to raves because I was more into electronic music. Even though by that time I'd already missed out on, you know, probably most of like the really cool, really underground raves. At this time, like when I started getting into the late 90s, you could buy tickets at like any, you know, rave record store for the next raves coming up. 
and they would be technically underground they would be technically legal but they still felt like very expensive and organized so it didn't have that feel to it that you know that felt very underground and exciting to people even though you could still get e and things like that you watch videos of raves in the early 90s just a whole different vibe it's very interesting because it does seem like everybody there is like on acid <laughs> as opposed to later raves where people you know are on like mdma there's a different energy to that <laughs> there was also other types of raves um, specifically like at this time too like late 90s mid 90s drum and bass started to come into rave culture and there was already sort of a chav culture in the uk like bro sports kind of culture that kind of was already going into the rave scene that people were not loving and it kind of people associated drum and bass with that like the bro that like the drum and bass has brought in the bros Even though a lot of people like jungle and drum and bass, they still didn't like the how raves seemed to change when they would have like drum and bass rooms and things. They would bring in these like more broish people who wear like sports gear and stuff, like white people. I'm talking about, and so that was kind of happening. But at the same time, there was more the psychedelic rave scene was going more underground into this more traveling sector of raves that were they were doing actual underground parties not super super underground like you could still hear about them fairly easily if you knew where to look but they were not publicized at like record stores like you had to go on a mailing list to find out about these kinds of raves and they were they played what's called side trance or go a trance music which is if you've heard trance music you're probably thinking to yourself oh that sounds awful like trance music's not psychedelic but the go a side trance sound is sort of by design meant to be listened to like on lsd or drugs like that it started in Goa, India, and it was basically, apparently it started with people playing old industrial records and like looping little sections of like craft work and stuff. The actual sound, the genre of Goa trance, when people started producing the music, think like infected mushroom or hallucinogen or like Spongle is considered like Psy Dub, which is an offshoot of Psy Trance, where it's like not the driving techno beat. It's more like using the same effects to like listen to on psychedelics. These parties were notorious for being like in very hot outdoor settings where people couldn't spin vinyl apparently, um, and they, because their records would melt. That was what that's like the legend says. So these people like did like DJ mixes on like tapes and like dat tapes, and they don't like beat match. So it is sort of a weird vibe to think that the early, the most psychedelic like early um, 
underground rave scene in Goa, India, where it was, was like not beat matched. Like the DJ mixes were like sloppy sounding because they couldn't spin records. So, anyways, what I'm getting towards here is that once he started to go to the United States, I heard of them personally as being, for me at least, the easiest access point to maybe search out other people who are into psychedelic drugs and people who had access to them and also a place to take psychedelic drugs and see you know go to a party that was specifically designed to go to for tripping where it wasn't like people weren't passing out acid there wasn't like a punch bowl with acid but it was sort of like implicitly known that you're most of the people there are tripping when they're going and that to me became my understanding in like the late mid to late 90s of like where most of the obscure psychedelic drugs were and that's where you started seeing like way more talk about dmt um you know drugs like 2cb or the different 2c drugs all these different obscure psychedelic drugs that i had really never even heard of before alex gray um artwork was up at these goa trance side trance raves i mean i remember seeing it myself like blacklight painted versions of them um you see it everywhere so it just Terence McKenna and him defined not just this whole psychedelic revival, but also like they were also very revered and enmeshed in that electronic music culture too. It was just a blend of everything. It was like everybody in the in the psychedelic electronic music scene knew about all those people and they were into all those ideas and sort of like Terence McKenna and Alex Gray were like you know promoting that scene too. And they were Terence McKenna was recording albums with. Space-time continuum, a local Bay Area. I, I don't know if you call him a techno musician, more like a chill-out musician. We recorded two whole albums with him that are spoken word. The rave scene itself, I mean, was the main driver of a marketplace for a multitude of different psychedelic drugs, not just MDMA. Um, but to get the more obscure drugs, you had to almost go to these more Goa trance or side trance parties now, or just the more underground parties in general. But the side trance, the Goa trance parties, they tended to attract these more hippie, you know, drug dealers who would come. Some of them would come from out of town, like from, you know, like the first time I did DMT, which I'll talk about a little later, came from a guy kind of like that who had like literally a brown old school style medicine bottle filled halfway <laughs> When I say medicine bottle, I mean like the size of like a hand soap dispenser, like size, five inches tall, filled halfway with pure DMT crystal. And he was just carrying this around in his pocket. Like that was a casual for him. And it's just like, what the fuck? Like people like this exist. Yes, they existed at like crazy Goa trance raves <laughs> and like rainbow gatherings and sometimes even psychedelic drug conventions, which yes, also existed that I will talk about going to. Interestingly, a key figure that's running politics today was trying to crack down on it. <laughs> Senator Joe Biden, a little late to the game, in 2002, passed the RAVE Act in the Senate. It was, the acronym stood for Reducing Americans' Vulnerability to Ecstasy Act. And there's some pretty wonky clips of Biden fear-mongering about parties I think this turned out to be, this is more of a local problem. If I were governor of my state or mayor of my town, I would be passing new ordinances relating to stiff criminal penalties for anyone who held a rave. The promoter, the guy who owned the building. I would put the son of a gun in jail. I would change the law. 
But we're afraid to do that because we affect commercial interests. They get kind of shaky when we do that. I would be moving vigorously. It's no, you can ask my cops are going to come and testify. And you know your folks. There's no doubt about where these raves are. In the middle of the desert. Arrest the promoter. Find a rationale unrelated to drugs. Keeping an unsafe, for example, I'm the guy who authored the crack house legislation. We can use the crack house legislation to tear down these buildings. Pretty silly stuff, the fear-mongering that was going on about just raves in general at this time. This is the one thing that they tried to do, is they tried to make it so that it's not like they're just saying there's like bigger penalties for people with possession of rave or club drugs, because they started using the term club drugs too, to, to lump in drugs like GHB and other types of pills. It seems like they're basically trying to make it so that you make a venue responsible for people doing drugs inside of it. So this is what was in the law that they try to pass. And basically just makes it too vague what kind of guidelines you need to follow as a venue owner to make yourself shielded from that liability. Like, how can you stop people from doing drugs in the bathroom? You have security guards in the bathroom stalls. There's just a whole series of questions that this makes, you know, raises. So it's, it's very fucking stupid on its face. And what's also hilarious is that the UK passed their own rave act. They just comically try to define what a rave is in terms of the music. So there's an actual <laughs> section of section five of their rave act, 63-1B, music, in quotes, includes sounds wholly or predominantly characterized by the emission of a succession of repetitive beats. <laughs> what? <laughs> I mean, isn't that all music to some extent? What? Who fucking wrote, what idiot asshole wrote this shit? It's just like laws like this were just so much just designed to, so these politicians could bloviate it was a fright night party these young people, ravers as many call themselves, will be remembering for a long, long time. 900 ravers were issued citations for $325, surely something to rave about. The offense? Aiding and abetting the consumption of alcohol in an unlicensed public setting. The public setting being this warehouse structure on the near south side. We did find evidence of plastic... Uh uh, cups uh, with uh, beers spilling out. A little bit of beer at a big, big party leads to this great big bust. At first blush, it seems a little far-fetched. We didn't know that this was any sort of something illegal. We were invited to a yeah. dance party. We showed up. But there was more to the crackdown than some partygoers acknowledged, like the pound and a half of marijuana police say they confiscated, and the 81 pocket-sized canisters of nitrous oxide, a mild anesthetic we also know as laughing gas. Police don't think kids will be raving again in Milwaukee warehouses for a very long time. And we'd just like to say that we're sorry that what happened happened. We just wanted to have a peaceful, fun, non-alcoholic event. The organizers of the rave say they will not have another party in Milwaukee. Each of them, by the way, was fined $3,000. And TV6 News has been investigating raving, as it is called, for several weeks now. And we'll tell you more about it in our news tonight at 10 o'clock. The city attorney said officials are concerned about drugs found and the fact that the party was at a warehouse. That could be a fire trap. The organizers were fined $3,000 each and had to publicly apologize. We're very sorry. Um, we will no longer be doing raves. Um, this has been the grave of rave. <laughs> 
Well, raves may be dead in Milwaukee for the time being, but they've been very much alive for a long time. Around the year 1998, when one could argue that like the real rave scene, the real underground rave scene had largely been overshadowed by this more commercialized rave scene, didn't change the fact that there was still massive amounts of pressed ecstasy pills, MDMA pills, flooding into the U.S. marketplace. I mean, at an exponential rate. Um, the late 90s, uh, you know, go to any rave, like I was saying, you will always find someone selling ecstasy, tons of different kinds of pills out. Most of them had insignias, almost like corporate brand logos on the, the actual pill. When Emmanuel Spherios comes into the picture, this is a guy that we've had on Media Roots years ago, incidentally, as the source of the Israeli art student incident. So like the Israeli art student story that we did largely revolved around me hearing firsthand from this guy named Emmanuel Spherios, who was in the psychedelic scene, encountering Israeli art students at the headquarters of an organization he founded called Dance Safe. 99 or 2000, I can't remember which year, um, I was visited in the Dance Safe office by two Israeli art students trying to, you know, sell me their artwork so that they could raise money to pay their college tuition. And I thought it was weird, um, mainly because uh, our office was in an almost vacant building in downtown Oakland on the second floor with no signs in front. You know, in the whole suite, there were only two offices out of like 10 that were rented, ours and, and, and some other companies. And we were way in the back and, you know, it just wasn't a coincidence like that they were there. And so I thought they were DEA or, you know, some kind of undercover operation investigating us, right? Uh, and, you know, they were very nice and I did not buy any of their artwork and they stayed right by the front door and I had a five minute conversation with them and they left. You know, pastel, oil paint, I can't remember exactly, but, uh, you know, art, but, but visual art. So they were, so they had everything pretty laid out pretty well for their cover story of being these um, Israeli I, artists. I would have, absolutely. I, I would have had no suspicions that they weren't who they said they were. If it wasn't for the fact that, you know, I was a drug policy reform organization and our office was not advertised anywhere and nobody ever would have stumbled upon it. Now, Dance Safe was founded in the late 90s, 98 explicitly to spread like pill testing advocacy the idea was that a lot of these e-pills like you mentioned already abby were adulterated with other drugs and you couldn't tell what was in them unless you had some kind of chemistry ability um, mass spectrometry or other kinds of testing ability if people who don't know what dance safe is go check it out online um, it's been around forever you can find their test. They sell now home testing kits where you can test drugs. You can test to see if drugs have fentanyl in it, for example. They're one of the only... Oh, that's, that's actually amazing because we talked about that on a previous episode. That's really incredible that they do that and that should be more widely publicized. It should be. and But there's also like, you know, pushback on it. Like people, there's like an article at Vice saying like these testing kits don't do anything. They're false uh, sense of security. So even though... I think personally that Dance Safe has done amazing work 
and Emmanuel specifically has probably saved thousands of lives, tens of thousands of lives through his work. There are other people out there who kind of poo-poo it as being like a false sense of security. I don't really get that mentality. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the same people who are the drug enforcement police. Like, well, like they'll say the same thing about Arrowhead, and they'll be like, "This is super irresponsible. You need to say, do not do this drug." You know, and it's yeah. like you're never gonna. That's not that's not a successful strategy. All you could do is help people do drugs safely. Yes, and this was sort of coming simultaneously with in '98 or so. From the years like 1998 to like 2002, uh, you already mentioned the Joe Biden Rave Act. There was a massive campaign by the DEA, by the federal government, by even people in the White House, uh, mainstream politicians, to demonize MDMA as being a drug that caused brain damage. That wasn't just causing people to go to the hospital and overdosing from like exhaustion, heat exhaustion, heart attacks, like they were already trying to claim. But there was a study uh, that was not done scientifically. It was a study that was leaned on by pretty much every federal agency you can imagine to say that there were brain lesions found in primates after being given MDMA. This study has been largely debunked in the decades since, but for some reason this got inserted into the mix as like the primary scientific study that everybody was touting saying that we now, these kids are, are killing themselves, they're giving themselves brain damage. I think I mentioned earlier that the term club drugs was used as an umbrella term for like all the type of, you know, rave drugs. But the government started to describe the phenomenon as being like club drugs. And they would even include things like rohypnol and claim that, you know, if you go to a club or a rave, be careful because someone's going to give you a roofie. And maybe that did happen on a, you know, very uh, minor occasions. But it's again to act like, you know, ravers are like evil people that if you go to a rave you're basically going to be targeted for rape so they threw that in the mix too you know to just make it seem extra scary but the main thing they did was they lied and lied and lied about mdma causing brain lesions let me actually play a funny clip here that's a dea produced special called club drugs with it has its own techno soundtrack on it and you could hear for yourself the kind of blatantly false propaganda that they were putting out about MDMA and other drugs um, at the time. And the thing that, that amazed me again is the biochemical changes that ecstasy causes, where these, uh, the, the kids believe that ecstasy is safe, uh, they enjoy the rave experience, and what's actually happening is over the next couple of days after taking ecstasy, uh, their, brain, their brain cells are actually being programmed to die. Uh, as an introduction, uh, I'd like to just uh, play a, a short uh, video for you. Andy. They are called raves, often longer parties held in dance clubs, bars, or other venues. Characterized by pulsating electronic or techno music, raves are fueled by a new constellation of drugs appropriately called club drugs. At the center of this constellation is MDMA, better known as ecstasy, the hug drug, E, and a host of other street names. MDMA was made a Schedule I drug under the Controlled Substances Act in 1985. That hasn't diminished its appeal for young ravers and a wide variety of others. I was about 
12 when I started to use club drugs. I was 14. I'd do it in school, go to clubs, go to raves and do it. Just do it by myself. Wherever I was, I'd do it. I'd use it every day just to go out, even just to go out to walk around the mall or something. Young users are sold on E for any number of reasons. You feel like invincible, you feel your body feels all tingly, you feel like you're floating. You don't have any worries when you're on them, and it's basically feeling good. It would uh, intensify whatever mood you're in. Taken in pill form and often called all things to all people, the drug gives ravers the energy to dance all night and more. Ecstasy raises the tactile sense, heightens visual and acoustic sensory perception, and induces a profound sense of well-being. All of that is true. What's not true, though, is what many users firmly believe, that there is no downside to the abuse of this drug. Ecstasy is a synthetic drug that is both a stimulant and a hallucinogen, technically a hallucinogen. And we know, for example, that heavy ecstasy use for a long period of time can actually damage critical brain circuits, critical brain areas. 90% of the ecstasy distributed worldwide is produced in clandestine laboratories in Western Europe, primarily in the Netherlands and Belgium. These organizations are extremely sophisticated at marketing this drug in the United States. They stamp it with logos that really hit to popular culture. On St. Patrick's Day, it'll be a logo with a shamrock. Valentine's Day, a logo with a heart. So they're really studying how we operate in this country, and they're gearing this drug to teenagers. We have not seen street distribution of this drug. Primarily, it is sold inside the club. So one of the challenges is to get inside these rave clubs where actual distribution of this drug is taking place. If E is at the center of club drug use, it is hardly alone in that dangerous arena. A whole spectrum of other drugs is there too. There's GHB, also known accurately as grievous bodily harm, and Rohypnol, called Rufi, both of which have gained notoriety as date rape drugs. Odorless, colorless, and tasteless, they can be put in drinks and ingested without the victim's knowledge. Drowsiness and helplessness follow as does amnesia, which makes it difficult to arrest and prosecute the perpetrator. Beyond those two, there's methamphetamine, speed, and the hallucinogen ketamine, special K, which is a veterinary anesthetic that can be snorted when in powder form. And of course, there's always LSD and PCP. All these club drugs are taken alone, in combination with each other, in combination with different drugs, or with alcohol. They have become so deeply integrated in the club scene that their use appears completely normal. So normal that there no longer seems to be any attempt to conceal it. Lately, raves are just a venue for drug purchases. They are no more than analogous to a crack house in which you go buy the drugs and go out the back door. Although there's music being played and the, and the, and the people at the raves are saying, I come here for the music, uh, drugs are predominant in these rave clubs, and it's just a mix of drugs and music, uh, and it's become a venue for drug purchases. There is little doubt such abuse is on the rise. Between 1998 and 1999, past year use rose by 33% for 10th graders and by a staggering 56% for 12th graders. But the largest category of club drug abusers consists of 18 to 25-year-olds. 
there are almost one and a half million of them. It's not like the older days when kids used to just drink alcohol and you kind of let them sleep it off and, you know, you would have some people die from alcohol-related deaths. But um, the combination of the club drugs with alcohol is a twofold problem. It makes, it increases your morbidity and mortality, and that's your incidence of dying from taking those drugs with alcohol increases exponentially. What is obvious is that young people are attracted to these drugs, and that attraction is reaching epidemic dimensions. Even more obvious is the fact that there exists a strong belief among users that these drugs are harmless. It is a belief research and real-life experience are challenging. And as that challenge becomes increasingly clear, more abusers are beginning to understand that taking club drugs is the opposite of harmless. It is dancing with darkness. And what were they basing all this hysteria on? You know, were they like cherry picking studies that were out or were they just like totally making this shit up? They were cherry picking studies that were out and it wasn't just cherry picking. It was a study that was, from what I understand, government funded that was like manipulative in the same way that those old, remember how studies used to come out saying like weed caused like cancer? It was like eight mm -hmm. times more cancer causing the tobacco. Dude, I still see, I still see that sometimes. Like randomly, there'll just be like an article that says that. There are studies that say that, that like have been debunked, but like people still use them. This is similar to this ecstasy study. It was like. Yeah. So Emmanuel Spherios was a guy from the Bay Area. He was already going to raves. He was already experimenting with psychedelic drugs, MDMA. And he had gotten wind of, and I don't know how he heard about this, because this must have been very obscure knowledge at the time that I would imagine most people who are into illegal drugs uh, wouldn't even touch something like this because it seems so dicey. You know, we already talked about how McKenna and others were writing very influential books on how to grow psilocybin mushrooms under a pseudonym. Mm-hmm. But this uh, guy, Emmanuel Spherios, he found out about a legal loophole. The DEA allowed a service, um, in what appears to be, in my mind, a legal loophole that exists for educators and parents to test drugs they find of their students or their children, qualitative testing to see what a drug is. So let's say if a parent finds a baggie of white powder under their son's bed. The DA allows a parent to anonymously send an illegal Schedule One drug through the U.S. <laughs> mail system, which is just nuts by itself, and a lab that's authorized by the DA, where there are dozens of them around the country, privately operated labs, mind you, that receive a DEA license, they are allowed to do qualitative testing of illegal Schedule One substances. They do it for the government. They do it for corporations, you know, pharmaceutical corporations, but they also can do it for private citizens. Let me jump in here. Do yep. they send the drugs back? <laughs> they do not. From what I understand, <laughs> they do not send the drugs back. Now, and also, is there like, is this like a kind of a hidden secret or is this like available on like the DEA's website? <laughs> like, where well, they're like, is, send us your shit. <laughs> it was a hidden secret at this time, but, yeah, yeah. but, but known enough for someone like Emmanuel to get wind of it. And he mm -hmm. found a lab in Sacramento that was a DEA authorized lab that did this kind of qualitative testing. Now, the way that they did it, this is a lab called Direct Detection Labs. 
And this lab, what they did at the time was people would send them drugs and they would have a voicemail message like they would put out like every week with a number barcode what the drug was. So anybody who'd sent stuff in anonymously, I guess was the point, could call this voicemail message and hear what their results were anonymously in an encoded like number code. Now, Emmanuel basically said, okay, if you're allowed to do this under this legal loophole, why can't you do this all on the internet? Like, why can't you take all that information and publish it on the internet anonymously? Like, why does it have to be such like a private secretive thing where it's like people calling in and having to hear a voice? Yeah, and it's like so inaccessible to like drug users. Like no one's going to fucking mail something into like a DEA lab. Of course. So what Emmanuel did, he came up with a, a business, a lucrative business sort of enticement for this guy to go along with this, which is, I think, very smart on Emmanuel's part. He contacted the owner of Direct Detection Labs and said, hey, I can direct a ton of business in your direction uh, because at the time, every single test was at least $100. So per test. Oh, wow. That's a, that's a pretty high expense. That's a lot right? at that time. And, you know. So what he did was he contacted the owner and said, hey, you're doing this anonymously as like a number code on a voicemail for people right now. But what if I told you that I could direct a lot of people to your service for the exchange of you giving me a photograph of the drug or the pill, because he mainly wanted him to test pill, ecstasy pills, mm -hmm. and where it came from. And I'll post it on a website for you. And and basically, I if you know, you, I'll send people who will just pay money for these testing, $100 a pop, and you just give me the information to post on a website. And this that was the agreement made. And that's sort of how the beginning of DanceSafe started before it officially had the name DanceSafe. It started as this extension of lab service that already existed around the country. He found one lab to do this. This is from Emmanuel's own words. He says, the lab program I started myself had been going for a long while before I had raised any money. I talked to Emmanuel for a very long time on the phone um, before recording this episode. In general, I've talked to Emmanuel extensively. He's given me a lot of interesting details about the origins of this. And he also informed me that it wasn't just Bob Wallace, who we're going to talk about in the next episode, but it was another Silicon Valley guy. The founder of the clothing shoe store Zappos, Tony Shea, a Silicon Valley startup guy, rich guy. He was the original backer and funder of these lab tests that Emmanuel was doing. So you already have basically a Silicon Valley guy, rich guy, paying for this very early iteration of DanceSafe before it even gets the name DanceSafe. And eventually Bob Wallace, uh, the Microsoft, one of the Microsoft founders, agreed to pay for every $100 test. So at a certain point, this was all being bankrolled oh my God. largely by one ex-founder of Microsoft who, you know, cashed out as a very rich man in the 1980s. So originally it was called the Ecstasy Harm Reduction Program. It started in the fall of 1998. The name DanceSafe itself uh, expanded the whole premise of what they were doing in scope. And that came about in the spring of 1999, Emmanuel says. Now, when DanceSafe, the name started, it became more of a public advocacy outreach group that tried to open up like local chapters in different metropolitan areas around the United States 
to do not just like booths, like they would have like information booths at raves. And this was like sort of their, like if you saw Dance Safe in their early 90s and you were there before they actually did pill testing, you probably saw them just passing out pamphlets, giving out information, sort of like an Irwid, but like giving out information mm-hmm. like at a rave or a festival, right? Right. Eventually, what they did, and this is when they actually went outside the realm of what was legally allowed in this loophole that existed at the time. So this legal loophole allows this to be done through the mail and to be done through DEA-authorized labs, right? Which is a very specific designation. Um, it's not easy to get a DEA authorization if you're a private lab. You have to be you have to be pretty vetted, you know, because you're dealing with illegal drugs oftentimes. That's the whole point of a DEA-authorized lab. So they have to trust you, you know, know you're not going to, like, skim some methamphetamine or whatever they're sending to you to test. This is when DanceSafe got into some legal gray area territory, which I think was a very brave and kind of pushing the envelope thing to do, which no one had done before this that I know of. Maybe there were other organizations that had tried this, but this was when it was first done like in mass and had a lot of awareness surrounding it. And it was this idea that DanceSafe would have tables or booths at raves, even really small raves sometimes. And what they would do is they would offer real-time testing of your pill. So you would buy ecstasy at a rave or bring your own from home, I guess. And if DanceSafe happened to be there tabling and you didn't already know or weren't sure what was in your pill, you would go and stand in a line, literally, because sometimes there were lines at raves. I I saw them myself. People would be waiting in line, and when it would be your turn in line, They would do a, I don't know the exact technical name for the type of test. It's the same kind of test that they, you can buy like drug testing kits for now at stores where they do an actual real time test of part of the pill to see what's in it. Now it doesn't tell you how much of what's in it. That's one of the Mm -hmm. maybe things that I could see an argument for being misleading or a false sense of security. However, that it's still important information to know if you got an e-pill and it has you know, and your your test shows it has DXM in it, for example, and no MDMA, that's pretty useful information. Right. <laughs> that's going to tell you that you basically bought a fake e-pill. Now, if the test yeah. tells you it has MDMA, it has methamphetamine, it has MDA, it has all these different drugs in it, and it's like a cornucopia of positive results, that may not be the most helpful test result. But you probably would be best not to take that pill anyways, you know, if you're trying to take pure MDMA. So even still, it's still useful. So I dispute that argument that this is could create a false sense of security because overall it is useful. It probably prevent a lot of people from taking adulterated pills, even if they didn't know to which level it was adulterated or whatever. I think it's great and I totally support it. And I think it probably saved a lot more lives than we even can imagine. Yeah, and I mean, unfortunately, you know, they couldn't be everywhere all the time, but where they were, they definitely helped save lives. They definitely helped prevent overdoses. And they were also simultaneously through the work of Emmanuel trying to combat the propaganda that was coming out by the DEA and the U.S. government against ecstasy. Not just the idea that it caused brain damage, which is one thing they had to try to debunk, but the whole other side that like ecstasy was just causing instant deaths and like... ER visits at raves all the time. This was the this was the another thing being perpetuated. And there is some 
argument to be made that people who would do ecstasy would not drink enough water, would, would overexhaust themselves, would do it in combination with other drugs. So there is a potential danger with just the idea of partying too hard on something that's basically an upper. Mm-hmm. So that is inherently risky if you're not responsible with it. And I think most people who are experienced drug users would would attest to that. That's that is a danger with any kind of party drug like MDMA. But there, but what the DA was trying to say is that people were like dying, dropping dead. That this drug was like killing people instantly, giving people heart attacks. So Emmanuel at this time, through his database of pills, thousands and thousands of photographs of pills, where they were located, when they went into the the testing system. He was able to look at all this data and essentially, in his mind at least, believe that he was able to sort of have a really good handle on what types of pills were being distributed across the country and sort of where they were generally coming from. Like he would see it a style of pill with, you know, the Mitsubishi logo, for example, coming from a specific East Coast or West Coast entry point into the country and then spread across the states. He could see this data with how much pill testing was being done through DanceSafe. Now, the flip side of that is I asked him about this because, you know, the whole time I'm, I'm asking Emmanuel, like, weren't you paranoid about the feds at least surveilling you at this time because you were really pushing the envelope? Like, doing pill testing at raves is going to make the feds mad. That's not something they're going to be happy about. And was he was he paranoid enough where he like had no one working with him? Was he like basically pioneering all this by himself? No, no. Then okay. that's kind of and this there's a whole story he wants to tell later in a book. Um, this is part of why I didn't record our interview for release mm-hmm. is because a lot of it involved basically. But that's the thing. It's like yeah, the more people you get involved, the more complex yeah. and and you know you become more vulnerable. Yeah, become yeah. more vulnerable too. So let's just leave it there. He as a lone person, probably had better intelligence at his fingertips about the distribution of MDMA in the United States than even the federal government did. So Mm -hmm. given that, it would make sense why the DEA would at least want to be looking at that information too. So just on some level, surveilling him or getting his data would have made sense. He thinks that that's probably likely, that they were at least watching him. Well, this is what makes the Israeli art student thing even more creepy. Exactly, the fact dude. that they somehow found his office, which was like there was mm-hmm. no publicized data about like where he was operating from, and like the Israeli art students like came to his office. Yep, and and for people <laughs> trying to sell, and this all happened in the same year, dude. Here's what's crazy: he also got visited <laughs> by DEA agents at some point. Now, his first thinking when he got visited by the Israeli art students was that they were DEA because this whole time he is paranoid and suspecting that he's already on the radar of the DEA. No, zero doubt about it. And this all culminates with not just Dan Safe appearing at raves and doing, you know, this revolutionary pill testing stuff in mass. Emmanuel became the face of like the activism movement kind of almost inadvertently by appearing on a 60 minute special that was mostly a smear piece against E. But for some reason, 60 Minutes actually gave him like a fair shot. And what he said on the 60 Minutes special was so impactful. This turned his organization into something that was rather low key and underground. And himself, as a person who was a rather obscure activist in the psychedelic community, to someone who was getting like phone calls every single day from different media organizations, like wanting to talk to him and get quotes about ecstasy. 
Somehow overnight, it had turned him from being this guy who couldn't get responses from all these people. He couldn't even get responses from like big uh, drug legalization advocacy groups until this special came out. And then he, then those kind of people were started to try to call him. The tables got turned all of a sudden and he was in this position where you know he became the face of this. So the DEA coming to visit him or hassling him was always something that he had in the back of his mind. That's why when the Israeli art students came, that was his first suspicion. But later on that same year, the DA agents also came. They didn't really say anything intimidating. They just sort of came and let them know they knew who he was and that they just wanted to come check it out. We're not trying to make drug use safer. We are making drug use safer. Emmanuel Seferius founded Dance Safe. Now he oversees 13 chapters across the country. If Sherry Rich had had access to one of our testing kits, she would still be alive today. Now, Seferius insists he's not encouraging ecstasy use. But just listen to him lecture. Everybody, practically, who does it, enjoys it. Or visit his Dance Safe website, and you'll see it's a very fine line. I do have one quote from the website. It says the following. By all indications, if used moderately and responsibly, MDMA seems far less dangerous than most recreational drugs, especially the two legal ones, alcohol and tobacco. Now, how is that not advocacy? Oh, well, it's not advocacy at all. It's simply telling the truth about a substance. We respect the ability of teenagers to make their own decisions, and we have seen results. We want to keep people alive and as healthy as possible until they're ready to make their own choice to stop using. Emmanuel Sofirios is a former ecstasy user and the founder of DanceSafe. We are healthcare workers. We see ourselves as a public health organization uh, reducing drug-related harm by providing life-saving information uh, to users. Detected some real ecstasy, but that doesn't mean it's pure, safe. But no matter what these testers find, remember the pill is always handed back to the user. No one is ever told to take or not to take the drug. The partier disappears into the night, perhaps not realizing that even pure ecstasy can kill. After all, he says, these partiers are going to take the drug anyway. The drug war uh, has been a miserable failure. We have not stopped the spread of drugs. Just say no. People who lived through the Nancy no. Reagan just say no years. Just say no. You'd be have seen that. We need to try something different. But what troubles authorities most about DanSafe is its practice of scraping the pill and then giving it back to the partier. But testing at the raves, he says, is simply an effort to save lives. In fact, Dance Safe compares its work to needle exchange programs that try to prevent the spread of disease among IV drug users. We see that as a good parallel. Um, needle exchange programs were uh, one of the first harm reduction services to become uh, popular. And pill testing, like needle exchange, is, is a service. Sounds to me like they, they care about kids. People are dying from things that are in ecstasy besides ecstasy. And people are dying because of misinformation and not knowing how to be safe. I think safe maybe is the wrong word in their name. Maybe it should be dance uh, deadly or dance dangerous. And what This is when things got really strange, according to him, where it was the DEA seemed to be losing the 
PR war in terms of convincing the public that MDMA was causing instant deaths and was inherently dangerous. And it wasn't just because of his pill testing. If I didn't make this obvious already, part of the reason he was doing this pill testing is to show that it wasn't MDMA in the pills that was harming people. It was adulterants in the pills. Chances were that they didn't actually die from MDMA. If they took a pill and overdosed on it, it was probably from something else. And this is something that was very obvious to anyone who was following this at the time. So I think on some level, the government knew they were losing this PR war fundamentally. They were trying to just go full hysterical like they did about LSD. Total lies, like blatant, blatant lies to the point where something very strange happened. And Emmanuel thinks that this could have been the work of the federal government or the DEA, although he has no proof. And from what I've seen of it, it does seem like it's something that was done intentionally to try to tank or ruin the ecstasy market in 1999. And what this was, Abby, was flooding the entire illicit ecstasy marketplace in the United States with pills that were adulterated with DXM. And these pills appeared everywhere in the country at the same time. This is what Emmanuel found so strange is that it wasn't just that he wasn't he could see where these green triangle DXM pills you know were coming into the country and how they're spreading across. It was like according to his data, it was just like they magically appeared in every metropolitan area at the same time. So automatically he's thinking this seems like someone is artificially inserting this into the drug market. Who would have the power to do that? And, and quickly explain what DXM is and what it does. Well, to you. DXM is interesting because it was legal. Dextromethorphan is the active ingredient in Robitussin. It is what people consider robo-tripping. It's a disassociative anesthetic in the same family as PCP and ketamine. It lasts much longer than ketamine. It doesn't typically cause overdoses or death. You can get really, really fucked up on it to the point where you seem like you're about to die. Like you're like basically comatose, paralyzed. You know, this is what Emmanuel deduced. And I have deduced this as well through my own research and just anecdotal research, Abby. I talked to four different people before recording this and asked them, what was your first e-experience? Describe to me the color of the pill, the shape of the pill, and what the experience was like. Guess what? Three out of the four people I talked to all said their first e-experience was green triangles and their experience was a horrible nightmare where they basically had to be like carried out of a rave or like thought that they were dying. Holy shit. So in the late 90s, I wouldn't surprise me at all if a lot of people's formative first attempt to try to do E was actually DXM. And they don't even realize it even, you know, 20, 30 years later that that's what happened to them because this is how widely they were distributed. Now, one more theory to back up what Emmanuel is saying about that these may have been distributed by the feds is that these drugs did cause a lot of emergency room visits, but not very many deaths. Now, any one of those emergency room visits were probably tallied up by law enforcement as being E is dangerous. MDMA is dangerous. It causes emergency room visits, but yet it wasn't MDMA. So basically what I'm saying is this was a drug that kind of fits a perfect template. It's not illegal. Let's say if the feds wanted to do something sneaky, like adulterate a drug into the MDMA market, it's a legal drug. Like it's not scheduled. It doesn't kill people, but it does 
create scary situations. So it kind of fits all these checkboxes. If you want to try to tank the MDMA market and make MDMA look dangerous, it kind of is the perfect thing to do in a weird way, to distribute all these green triangles out there, make it seem totally normalized, like people you know, think, just assume it's an e-pill, and just send a bunch of kids to the emergency room and scare a bunch of parents. In 1998, emergency rooms around the country voluntarily reported 1,142 visits related to ecstasy use. So this is what Emmanuel thinks happened. I believe this is very likely. And I think it's because the federal government simply could not win the PR battle against ecstasy. With the popularity of ecstasy clearly on the rise, this expanding drug war has the look of an uphill fight. And this was almost like a Hail Mary play. Now, this is a, a unprovable conspiracy I'm laying out, but it also just doesn't make sense why drug dealers themselves would adulterate their own market with like a, a legal, like over-the-counter drug like this. It just doesn't make sense. And not and not just like they didn't adulterate MDMA pills. They just these were straight up DXM pills. There was nothing else in them. And I, and I think that probably just vindicated Emmanuel even more because it's like, wow, there's some really dirty tricks being played here to try to make MDMA seem dangerous uh, to the point where someone has basically ruined, at least for the time being, like the illicit market with this many fraudulent yeah. pills. I mean, say less because you don't need to convince me that the government was doing this. And it also, it's like, who else would stand to benefit and who would have the means to distribute it across the country? Like in every metropolitan city that these pills were starting to emerge from. It's like, that seems like a very well-coordinated strategy and also just bizarre. It's extremely bizarre. And, and I <laughs> forgot to mention also that the, let me just describe very briefly what the actual black market was, like from, from manufacturing to distribution. Most of these pills were manufactured in Eastern Europe and kind of coming right off of the collapse of the Soviet Union, there's this idea and plausibility that a lot of those corporate logos were cool to people who didn't were not living under capitalism before. It wasn't like ironic. It wasn't like a tongue-in-cheek thing that all these manufactured pills had corporate logos on them. Like, I don't know if that's true. That's sort of an anecdotal thing that I've heard, but it, they did mostly come from Eastern Europe. And oddly, they mostly got distributed through a distribution network where Israel was at the center of. They would go through Israel and then be distributed everywhere else in the world from there. Now, that sounds very strange, but that is largely backed up by evidence is that for some reason, Israel became a hub for the sort of the illicit trafficking distribution channels. That's what's so bizarre about the Israeli art students thing is that the DEA themselves put out a memo saying, we believe there are like 200 potential Israeli spies here pretending to be students spying on our agencies and our, like our offices. And then also talking about MDMA and also some of them have connections to MDMA trafficking. This is all in their memo that got leaked. Never would have stumbled upon us. If they entered that building to try to sell their art, if they knocked on the first door, there'd be nobody in that <laughs> office box. They knocked on the second door, there'd be nobody there. You know, it's just impossible that they weren't specifically coming to find out who we were. So, like I said, I was always very suspicious of who who these kids were. I thought they were they were they were some U.S. based 
intelligence agency that was concerned about us because they were also corrupt and profiting off of the illicit drug trade. I didn't suspect at the time it was uh, Israel, even though we knew Israel was uh, engaged in, in the ecstasy trade at the time. So it's a very strange, convoluted thing. Like, what was actually going on there? Was the DEA or the feds illicitly flooding the, the MDMA market with fake DXM pills to try to help win the, you know, the war on drugs? Was Israel spying on these DEA agents, and why were they doing it? Or was it, did it serve some other purpose? And was, was the Israeli government somehow involved in the illicit MDMA trade, and why? I mean, did they have their own... Iran Contra thing with E, like what was the what was actually going on there? It just raises so many bizarre questions that I don't think we'll ever get the answers to. Emmanuel was sort of there in the center of all this, and that's why his story I think is just so interesting. All of this because you know he doesn't shy away from conspiracies, and he he openly admits that all this stuff is very sus. Did you know him back in the day, or did you seek him out after you were doing research about the Israeli art students? I randomly met Emmanuel because I saw him comment on John Gold's wall that the Israeli art students came to the what? dance safe offices. And I was like, Oh my God, that's and so And I was like, strange. Dude, I remember dance safe. How did he even know John Gold? He, um, he's kind of like <laughs> into 9 11 research. So he's like a pretty open minded guy. Oh, wow. Testing drugs idea and stuff like where did that energy go i mean dance safe still exists as like a testing like they do tabling they mm -hmm. do testing they sell test kits but the ecstasy testing database itself got absorbed by erwood um and we're going to talk about them on the next episode that original model started by emmanuel was essentially given over to a different fixture in this scene so got that's it. sort of the end of his story there but well, the only people I know of in the entire drug scene to have a very fascinating encounter with these Israeli art students and who was definitely also being watched by the DEA. So just one quick side note, just because you talked about why would dealers want to dilute their own supply with like a like something as weird as DXM. Like, how do you explain why dealers do this today with fentanyl? Is it cheaper that's a good question. I mean, I would even make the argument, too, that it's... I wouldn't be surprised if some feds were doing that, too. I'm not saying that they're behind all of it, but, like, fentanyl is cheaper and it is an opioid. So it does make sense why people would cut heroin with fentanyl. The other things that people are talking about, like fentanyl and coke and things, that, to me, sounds more suspicious. Like, what drug dealer on the right. planet would want to kill right. or overdose his own customers who are thinking they're buying coke with like a powerful opioid downer it doesn't make any sense to me no i know and, th and that actually kills so there's multiple people that are dying from thinking that they're taking coke and it's laced with fentanyl this is a real thing that's happening and it's absolutely and it's all nuts. being blamed on china um which is fascinating how because that's where a lot of how it's so? being produced because like there's a lot of illicit labs in china <laughs> okay i mean yeah, a lot of shit's produced in China. Like that's, I mean, yeah. I guess if you want to make a Chinese <laughs> conspiracy it, it's like, about everything, it's like US, you could. Yeah, yeah. It's like U.S. businesses like made a deal with Chinese businesses to produce all this shit there, and then it's like just a perfect mm -hmm. scapegoat. Like anytime something happens, it's like, well, this is China's fault. Yeah, well, anyway. I just wanted to comment on that really quickly. Is that like it is very fascinating how 
you will even talk to people who are like opioid users or addicts and they'll be like, no, the fentanyl thing is the biggest problem. And it is like coming from China. And it's like, okay, but what about all the addicts in this country? Like if, okay, fentanyl might be causing more deaths, but what about just people who are like hopelessly addicted all their lives to like opioids? That's all the fault of fucking major pharmaceutical corporations here. Sackler family, Johnson and Johnson, Purdue, all those companies. I think it's very convenient that the, all the discussion has shifted just to fentanyl from China. I mean, that cannot be a coincidence in terms of like the PR value that gives those companies. So that's my final word on no, that. No, of course not. Of course not. And I'll end this episode here just by saying that this is, at this point, it was sort of like, I knew that I wasn't like a party guy. I didn't like, you know, I didn't even like like buying weed from like a drug dealer, like a local drug dealer in town. Like it was, it was annoying to me. Like I didn't, so like I, I didn't, I didn't have the social skills or the experience to like know how to navigate and like casually find LSD or even, you know, any, like even something like mushrooms or LSD seemed very challenging to me at the time. So at that same time is when I started just going on the internet researching other alternatives and naturally you know my thinking was like what about legal alternatives or legal psychedelics that that's kind of what led me in the direction of the story i'm going to continue to tell or we're going to continue to tell about how irwid and the usenet uh, which was like an early message board system that existed pre the world wide web um, that existed back in the 1970s that had like drug forums on them where people like of very high levels of experience and intelligence would be talking to like regular kids basically like me so we're going to end episode two here but just for some context in case you're curious i was around 18 to 20 years old during most of these firsthand stories i'm going to be telling throughout this podcast series in the next episode, we take a slight detour and focus on influential psychedelic intellectuals and storytellers who popularized DMT in the 1990s, like Terence McKenna, Jonathan Ott, DM Turner, and analyze the New Age spirituality that became prominent within the movement, a movement that still continued to narrowly focus on tryptamines and phenethylamine-based psychedelic drugs, while pushing powerful hallucinogens like salvia divinorum to the sidelines. The first three episodes of this series will be unlocked for everybody. The fourth episode is exclusive to our subscribers. Now this episode will eventually be unlocked, but if you'd like to hear it immediately as you're listening through this series, please go to patreon.com slash mediarootsradio. And for as little as $5 a month or per creation, you get access to our locked exclusive episodes like episode four of our psychedelic series and around 100 hours of other exclusive content. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you on part four. <laughs>